<laughs> Someone needs to. It's not going to be me. I'm just going to go after it. <laughs> Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Humanity Matters broadcast. I'm Dr. Philip Fletcher, your host, where we discuss and reflect on theology, philosophy, leadership, and nonprofits. We are continuing the series, Meet the Candidates, a discussion on poverty in Arkansas. I'd like to open up with a thought from theologian Howard Thurman, who stated this, and I quote, even though a man is convinced of his infinite worth as a child of God, this may not in itself give him the opportunity for self-realization and fulfillment that his spirit demands. There are vocational opportunities denied him or her. It is obvious the individual must reckon with the external facts of environment, especially those that constrict his or her freedom. And so we turn to the environment of poverty in Arkansas and its impact on the freedom of men, women, and children who live in our state. The state of Arkansas boasts a population of approximately 2.8 million persons with close to half a million persons living in poverty. We are 45th in the union with overall poverty rate of 17.2%. Demographically, 28.9% are African American. Uh, Latinos make up 14.1% of those living in poverty. And while whites continue with 14.1% as well. Arkansas has a graduation rate of 84.9%. And HUD reported in a 2016 report of homelessness of 2,400 persons, and approximately 200 of those persons are veterans. So it's important the poor in our society have concerns addressed in a loving, civil, and nonviolent manner. For us to move forward, we have to work together in love for the good of each other. And today I have with me Jared Henderson, who is the Democratic candidate for governor in the state of Arkansas. How are you doing today, Jared? Doing well. It's good. good to be with you. Good. I'm glad you're here. And so, uh, once you could give us an introduction about yourself, tell us about yourself, um, where you come from, family, and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, it is a thrill to be here with you. I appreciate the, the opportunity, and I'm also glad that we're taking the time to focus on this topic. You know, you called out why this is important in this state. The only thing I would add to your brilliant introduction is that when you look at children specifically, yeah. that poverty rate's even higher. Yes. More than one in four children in right. this state are living out or below poverty. And, yeah. Uh, I just think that's unacceptable yeah. anywhere, but certainly in the richest nation in the world. Yes. Um, you know, to tell you a little bit about myself, you know, I was, uh, my family goes back generations in Arkansas. I was born uh, in uh, this state in Little Rock about mm -hmm. 40 years ago. Uh, I was born to an unmarried teenage mother. I was given up for adoption in the first week of my life. Uh, you know, so I had some luck right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. They probably spared me from, from growing up in a life near or in poverty. Okay. Uh, you know, I was raised by a, a loving family. I was their only son, uh, but it's a family that, uh, like many in this state and this country, has kind of built its way out of poverty over mm -hmm. generations. Uh, two generations ago, my grandmother uh, uh, went to the eighth grade twice because there was no high school. She got a union job that paid a living wage that allowed her to not just get on her feet economically, but to provide more for her daughters who got to go uh, to and through high school mm -hmm. and my parents got to set me up for a foundation where I got to complete high school and go on to college mm -hmm. um, and that's I think the American and, and Arkansas dream when it's working at its best but to your point we're here because uh, that dream isn't able to be realized by enough people particularly people in poverty today okay so why are you running for the chief executive for the state of Arkansas. Yeah. I, you know, so I, you know, I mentioned that I've been raised here. I'm a product of our public schools. I'm a graduate of the University of Arkansas. 
but I've also gotten to see this state from the outside in from okay. a variety of angles. Uh, you know, I started my career working at NASA. I later transitioned to the private sector and got to work for one of the top business strategy firms in the world. Uh, over the last decade, though, I've come back to Arkansas and spent most of my time here in public education. Okay. And most of that time has been spent recruiting and training teachers for some of our highest poverty schools in the state, predominantly in the Delta and in South Arkansas. Okay. And all of those experiences collectively have given me two deep convictions and okay. two, two urgent reasons why I'm in this. First is that Arkansas has immense untapped potential. You know, you talked about us being 2.83 million people. We are still small enough where you can have a political culture, you can create trust so that we can do big things. And if you look over the last couple generations in Arkansas's history, you see us doing big things, whether it's in business, agriculture, politics. And that, that proud history, it makes me want to demand a bold future. It makes okay. me want to demand big goals for the next 20 years. You know, the second reason, you know, goes back to what I've been doing the last 10 years. You know, I've been in the Delta, I've been in district after district, community, school district after school district, community after community, and I've just seen firsthand the inequities that still exist. Okay. And not every child, not every young adult has a fair shot okay. at realizing their full potential, as okay. you mentioned in the beginning. And I, I, I firmly believe that that's not only wrong, mm -hmm. morally, okay. but I also know that we all lose out. Okay. when we allow that to perpetuate itself. And I think that government, state government in particular, can play a, a role in ensuring that we expand opportunity and, and some measure of justice to everyone where it doesn't exist today. Okay, thank you. Uh, this is Philip Fletcher. Once again, we're with the Arkansas Democratic uh, candidate for Governor Jared Henderson, and we are discussing poverty in Arkansas. And so your last comment is a good segue uh, to my next question. Uh, Give us a little more detail in how you understand the role of government in addressing poverty, uh, specifically in the state of Arkansas. Yes, well, I think it can involve kind of two, two broad ways. And one is, I'll give you two examples, okay. or one of each. So first, sometimes there's a need for direct action. So for example, you know, when we're talking about uh, breaking the cycle of poverty, of course, I think most of us would agree that education has a big role to play, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and you know, if you go into impoverished communities, uh, you will find that the challenge in these classrooms is much higher than it is in communities that are, that are more middle class or affluent. And it is not because the children in those classrooms have any less potential. They don't. Right. But it is because they have higher needs and we need more resources. We need even more out of our teachers and our school leaders to help the children overcome their barriers and reach their full potential. To me, that demands direct involvement by the state that says we're going to act boldly, creatively, or we're going to act with great resources if necessary to make sure that our children in our highest need areas have access to some of our very best teachers. Okay. And if that means we need to pay them a lot more, we need to create greater incentives, uh, to make the jobs not only attractable but sustainable, mm -hmm. we should make it a priority with our tax dollars, with our budget, to make that happen. Okay. You know, that's an example of, of a way in which government can act directly. There are other ways in which I think government, and a governor in particular, mm -hmm. can be a convener of okay. all the other resources in society to tackle a problem. Okay. And so I'll give you an example of that. You know, Arkansas, we talked earlier, you know, more than one in four of our children in the state are living in poverty. There are a number of reasons that's true, but I would argue that one of the single biggest reasons is because in most years, Arkansas has the single highest rate of teen pregnancy in the United States. And, you know, we could do something about that as a state. If you look around the country, over the last decade in particular, numerous states have taken this on, and they've seen 20, 30, 40 plus percent reductions in four or five years. Okay radical progress is possible. 
Okay. Um, but I think that doing so in a way that is consistent with local values, that candidly is politically possible, mm -hmm. it's probably not going to be done by a governor trying to ram legislation through a legislature. It's going to be done by convening people county to county, community by community, and saying, can we agree that we'd love our kids to grow up before they take on parenthood? Okay. Yes. Here's five options for how we do it. Education, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. What can we do with local okay. values and local resources? So that's using the power of the office, not necessarily to pass legislation, not even necessarily to, to deliver more money, but to bring people together and to make sure we're having the right conversations. Okay. So in your uh, travels, you know, as you're running for office and even in the work that you were doing prior to running to office, describe uh, poverty as you've seen it in Arkansas. Yeah, well, you know, when we think of poverty, we tend to think of it in terms of dollars and cents, yeah. you know, uh, lack of money. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly a form of poverty, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but there are other types of poverty that uh, tend to come along with that. It's uh, just lack of access to any variety of resources, lack of access to people that have lived outside your county, mm -hmm. lack of access to people that have been to and through college. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, lack of access to healthcare, mm -hmm. uh, to mental health resources. There are a variety of aspects. It's a deficit of different things that humans ideally have when they're living full, mm -hmm. thriving lives. Yeah. You know, and when you see lack of uh, money, economic poverty, you tend to see these other things okay. too. Uh, and so when we're thinking about breaking that cycle of poverty, yes, it involves money, it involves resources, but it, it, it requires us to think holistically okay. about how we make sure human beings, whether they're young children or young adults, have the full spectrum of, of resources they need mm -hmm. to realize their potential to live in a community where, yes, okay. they have to work hard, but that hard work is enough okay. because of the other things that surround them. Okay, that's good, that's good. And so um, if you could, if you could encapsulate it, how would you define poverty? I'm glad you said it's yeah. not just about lack of money, uh, but how would you define poverty uh, in your administration? Yeah, so I think it is, it is a lack of or absence of the basic things that in 2018 mm -hmm. America we ought to be able to take for granted. Mm -hmm. Physical safety, electricity, water, mm -hmm. I would even add internet okay. in 2018, health care. Okay. The basics that you need to have a fair shot okay. of living a safe, productive life, okay. of, of realizing or at least having a shot at realizing your potential mm -hmm. and your, your basic dreams, mm -hmm. uh, it's the things that hold you back from that. Like I said, again, you can kind of reduce it, you know, for people that are familiar with you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? right? It's, right. It's, it's literally your physical safety and well-being, your health, your ability to not have to worry or wonder where your next meal is going to come from. Um, you know, the next level in this society is, do you have somewhere you can go where you can learn to read, where you can learn math, where you can learn to develop your brain and your mind? Yeah. Uh, you know, those kind of things. We have to make sure that all citizens have those things as basics. And if any one of those are missing, mm -hmm. it jeopardizes the whole, uh, a person's whole life. Okay. okay. Uh, give us a more detail, just some personal experiences you've had with poverty. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I I will tell you, I'll tell you a, a story that that I saw recently on the campaign trail. So, okay. the last, uh, as I mentioned, the last six years I've been working in Arkansas directly, but the last ten years I've been in this arena of education, educational equity, and high poverty areas. 
And so I've seen this for years and years, but the most recent moment that I had that really hit me on the gut in the gut was probably about three months ago on the campaign trail. And I, I make it a point to stop in schools regularly. Uh, I, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, I don't even know if it's that smart a campaign strategy. It's a little bit self-indulgent because being in schools and being around kids is just it's rejuvenating for me. Yeah, exactly understand. right. Yeah. Um, and so I was in the Delta. I was in Phillips County uh, about three months ago, and I was in a middle school classroom. And I was talking to a, a group of eighth graders that were in, I think, pre-AP civics or something like that. And so these weren't even voting age kids, but right. it, it was it was great to talk to them. And they were asking all these brilliant questions. And you know, I was kind of filling up my cup, so to mm-hmm. speak. Mm-hmm. But near the end, uh, you know, this this girl asked me a question. She's probably about 14 years old, I guess. And um, and you know she's in Phillips County, one of our poorest counties uh, in the state. And she asked me. She said, "Jerry," or she said, "Mr. Henderson." She said, "Can I ask you where you grew up?" And I said, "Well, sure." I said, "I I grew up in Springdale, Arkansas. You know, in the northwest part yeah. of the state." And this 14-year-old girl, she nods her head and she she kind of looks down and she says, "Yeah." She says, "That's the best place to grow up." Mm-hmm. And she's 14 years old. She's probably been out of her county. I bet she can count the number of times on one hand. Mm-hmm. But she knows that she doesn't have the same resources, the same opportunity mm-hmm. as kids living in a place that she's never been. It's not that far, mm-hmm. right? And so to see, which is the type of poverty, yeah, right? right? And to see that firsthand in the voice and the eyes of a child, especially one that, that classroom had every bit of the raw potential in it of any classroom I ever was in in mm-hmm. Springdale, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But they're not getting the same fair shot mm-hmm. to, to, to realize it. And, you know, to me, I, I look at that and I, and I ripple that across all the classrooms in the Delta and other places where we could say that. And I just think to myself, you know, who's to say that in one of these rooms or in that very room I was in, there wasn't a child in there that had it in their brain, had that gift that could one day cure a type of cancer mm-hmm. or to write a book that would be read for 500 years or just to be a phenomenal pres- or pres- uh, parent that would raise four incredible citizens in our democracy, right? We are putting all of those gifts, all that potential at risk when we allow that inequity mm-hmm. and that poverty to perpetuate. I mean, I'll just follow up with that. So, um, you know, I've traveled to state uh, as a member of uh, Arkansas leadership uh, through the state chamber. Yeah. I was able to yeah. see the whole state and the, you need to talk about the uh, inequities, I think even by mm-hmm. region. Like central Arkansas is pretty prosperous. You mentioned Springdale, Benton, uh, with Tyson and, and Walmart up there is yep. pretty prosperous, but like in the Delta, and I'm not from here, uh, from Arkansas, but in the Delta it's more depressed than others. Why, why do you think that is in your in your estimation? Well, I mean, there, there's a lot of reasons, and okay. some of them, just to be clear, are you know they're they're macroeconomic. You know, a hundred more years ago, Phillips County was the most prosperous county in the state, and Northwest Arkansas was mm-hmm. kind of the the forgotten mm-hmm. hill country, right? Mm-hmm. And and over time, forces larger than any governor or even any president have, have mm-hmm. kind of shifted mm-hmm. things, you know, mm-hmm. as agricultural's changed and other industries have, have risen. Having said all that, we're not helpless in the face of these things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But it requires us to recognize the magnitude of the challenge that we have to be seriously committed to doing something about it mm-hmm. and then to acting boldly mm-hmm. to break that cycle. And so, you know, to give you an example again, like I have seen 
kids, not just in Arkansas, but around the country that are facing obstacles that most of us can't even imagine. Mm -hmm. Not just in their schools, but in their homes, in their communities. Um, and it's easy, even if you have a good heart, to say, well, that kid just never, they don't have a shot. Mm -hmm. You know, there's almost no way they're going to make it. Yeah. And the, whether you say it or not, implicitly kind of shrug your shoulders and conclude you can't do anything. That's not true. I, I have also seen in communities over and over again that kids, even facing the biggest obstacles, if they have incredible educators mm -hmm. year after year, mm -hmm. they can overcome it. They can learn at the same rate. They can achieve. They can break that cycle of poverty for themselves, ultimately for their families. And if you do it enough, it breaks it for a community. Yeah. But simply doing what we do in every other community and middle class affluent communities and just kind of trying it a little harder mm -hmm. in a high poverty community doesn't work yeah you've got to invest greater resources you've got to bring more to bear mm -hmm. and it requires going above and beyond kind of marginal incremental mm -hmm. investments you know to me I, you know i think i think you know i i, I read a, a report a couple of years ago and I may be getting the numbers a little bit off, but the main point is true. You know, out of all the nationally board certified teachers that we have in this state, okay. about 2% of them are working in high poverty schools. 2%. The high poverty schools are precisely where we need Leave them. our best teachers, mm -hmm. right? And I don't blame our educators for not necessarily going out of their way, mm -hmm. but we need to make it worth it and attractive. Okay. And if that means we need to, after five or seven years of service, find a way to not just reduce, but eliminate their educational debt, mm -hmm. those are the types of ideas we need to think about. It doesn't mean that we were talking about five or seven percent raises which which qualifies as transformational leadership in some states around the country we need to be thinking about no in a decade how do we how do we increase pay in our high need areas by 50 60 70 percent like it won't be easy but it but leadership in this situation means well that's going to be our singular goal okay and over the next eight years if i'm governor that's what that is going to be our top line goal that we engineer everything else to figure out okay because it's, it's going to be stuff like that that's mm -hmm. going to take to move the needle. But we need to start by saying this is a priority. It is solvable. But getting there is not going to be, well, we're going to tinker with it. It's going to be, no, we're going to act boldly and if necessarily in a radical way okay. to make sure that we create a new reality in our communities and for our kids. Oh, that's good. Uh, once again, I'm Dr. Philip Fletcher. I'm here with Jared Henderson, who is the Democratic candidate for governor for the state of Arkansas. And we were talking about... Uh, poverty in Arkansas. We are live here at Round Mountain Coffee. It's got a good full room uh, today. And so if you have a question or anything, uh, please send it in. We'll take a question from the room uh, as well. Uh, so let's get a little bit more into uh, the weeds, if you will, regarding poverty. And, and obviously education is a, a very big uh, priority for you. Yeah. And um, I received earlier some questions concerning uh, public schools, charter schools. Uh -huh. um, give us uh, your philosophy on public schools, charter schools. How do you think those work together, especially addressing uh, some of the things you talked about with uh, persons and students in poverty? Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, in terms of public schools, you know, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned, uh, you know, in these my the first six months of my political life is mm -hmm. is you have to be, uh, you know, very explicit about what you believe and what you fight for. And mm -hmm. to me, it just I've always grown up believing that good public schools are one of the single most important things that have made America great in okay. so many ways. So I, I just don't think there's any institution that we should value more. Okay. Uh, 
uh, and so I, I'm, I'm just going to state that plainly. Okay. Now, when it comes to charter schools, um, you know, especially in the Democratic Party in certain parts of the state, okay. it, the popular answer would be to say I'm against charter schools okay. categorically. We should never have them. Okay. Um, I don't feel that way. Okay. Um, I do think uh, that in many, many cases, charter schools are a net negative on certain communities. But okay. sometimes they can be incredibly valuable. So okay. I'll give you an example when I think they're good and a, and a time okay. when I think they're destructive. Right. So you go you know, out into the Delta where I've worked. Mm -hmm. There's a charter school network out there that exists specifically to achieve educational equity. They exist to serve the highest need children. Okay. And their recruitment philosophies, their educational approach, all of this is meant to figure out how you address the needs of children growing up in poverty, how okay. you break that cycle. And their results in this particular network are tremendous. Okay. Students in those communities would be ill-served if we were to wipe out or not allow those schools to exist. Okay. Now, you go into other communities, there's some in Arkansas, there's some uh, elsewhere where you have charter schools that spring up in a, in a community mm -hmm. and they don't have that unique mission for equity. They don't go out of their way to serve kids with the highest okay. need. And what you have many times in those situations is you have schools that have a student body that is disproportionately middle class or affluent. Mm -hmm. And what that ends up doing is the, the dollars go with those students to their charter school. Right. You leave the district not only with less money, mm -hmm. but you leave them with a student population that disproportionately has higher needs. Okay. And that is destructive. Okay. Uh, and when that is happening, and it is in some Arkansas communities, mm -hmm. we need to, at the very minimum, we need to name that and figure right. out how we deal with it. We need to not pretend like that there's not a problem, okay. you know, which I think we do. Okay. And I think, that, you know, the only thing I'd say about charter schools, the one thing that I do think that we need to have is more accountability for them in this state. Mm -hmm. In Arkansas, once you get a charter, it's really hard to lose it. And okay. there are some schools that are doing great work. There's also some schools that they had their shot, mm -hmm. it's not working, and they, they need to be held accountable. Okay. What do we, what, um, just delve a little deeper. So yeah. those, those schools that are not performing well, public schools, how, how can uh, state government and state board of education, what, what do we need to do? Yeah. What do we need to do to improve that inform, performance? You've talked about resources, better teachers. Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, more finances to, to yeah. uphold those, those schools, but what else needs to be doing? Well, so I, always always bring things back to teachers and school leaders in, okay. in this campaign okay. uh, and I think again our singular goal needs to be making this the best state in the country to be a teacher in a decade to be a teacher and to be a school leader and the reason why I always bring it back to that yeah. is that if you have great people in the building in every classroom at the school leadership position if you give them the resources they need and then you get out of their way, mm -hmm. you've got a fighting shot of building an excellent school. Okay. If you do not get that right, okay. if you don't have great people, if they don't have the resources, and they're not kind of unburdened from mm -hmm. over-management, whether it's from Little Rock or DC or whatever, I would argue nothing else you do matters. You can send your kids to school in palaces, you can give them all iPads, you can have the glitziest technology you've ever imagined, but if you don't have talented educators that have the freedom and the resources they need, it won't matter. Okay. It will not matter. Uh, uh, 
You know, you can. We spend so much time thinking about choice, about charters. We spend so much time thinking about technology, about curriculum, about testing schemes, about how we evaluate and manage teachers. You know, at best, those things might help a tiny bit. I think in a lot of cases they make things worse. I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, we've invested as a state a lot of resources over the last five or some odd years in a teacher evaluation system. Okay. And, you know, I've been in education in Arkansas the whole time, and when it was being developed and conceived, it was something that educators actually viewed with a lot of optimism, a real sense of possibility. Okay. But you get five years in, and almost every teacher will tell you that what it, this evaluation system has actually done is it's buried teachers in paperwork. Okay. We're applying it to nationally board certified veterans the same way we're applying it to rookies that are struggling through their second semester. And it's demoralizing teachers, it's burying them in paperwork, it's separating them from their kids, mm -hmm. it's, it's implicitly telling them we don't trust you, mm -hmm. and so we're going to make you document every darn thing you do. Yeah. And it's having these educators tell the young people they know in college and elsewhere, hey, I understand you love kids, I understand you want to make a difference in this world, but I got to tell you, you might ought to consider doing something else besides being an educator. And that's why in the last 10 years we've seen dramatic drops in the number of people that are signing up and training to be teachers. It's the biggest problem that no one's really talking about. Okay. Uh, so let's transition uh, education. Uh, you referred to in your introduction about a living wage. Yeah. Um, I uh, looked at some uh, information uh, from a website. They are able to compile what a living wage is per state. All right. And uh, considered a single parent of, of one, uh, that man or woman needs to make $21 an hour uh, for it to be a living wage. Wow. Uh, to, for them to meet all of their yeah. basic uh, expenses. Um, for a dual household with two children, uh, each adult needs to make fourteen dollars and twelve cents. So mm -hmm. a combined twenty-eight, fourteen, yeah. or twenty-eight out of twenty-four. Uh, so what needs to be done to improve wages for our Kansans, especially poor our Kansans, so that um, you know it relieves charitable institutions, it relieves even um, you know our government institutions and those that need to uh, yeah. give out uh, assistance. What needs to be done? to improve their wages for our Kansans, and yeah. how do you see that? Yeah, I'd say a few things. So one, I mean, you know, the most common uh, talking point for Democrats comes back to the minimum wage, and mm -hmm. I do support an increase on okay. that. You know, I think there'll be a ballot measure this year, I believe, that uh, would raise it to $11 an hour in the coming years okay. as a start. I do think, you think that's, where, where do you fall I, I, I support that. Okay. Um, right. I, I do support that measure. Obviously, I'd like to see wages go higher over time. To your point, they have to be higher for families yeah. to really have a fair shot, much less thrive. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that, that's one kind of the most simple okay. you know, political initiative. Yeah. I think beyond that, too, we also need to realize what some of the main drivers of costs are in this society and mm -hmm. figure out what to do about that. The mm -hmm. biggest one right now, uh, the two biggest are higher education and healthcare, okay. both of which seem to rise by double digits every single year. No yeah. one has a good answer why, much less what to do about it. Mm -hmm. Like those are some of the problems that we need to focus on like mm -hmm. a laser and no one's even really trying. We're still having a perennial debate over whether or not we should keep Medicaid expansion, mm -hmm. which was one of the most successful things Arkansas has done in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, we need to move on from that, figure out how we lower the cost of healthcare. Beyond that, you know, the other thing that, you know, when I, in my platform, one of the, the kind of four big most common ideas that we run on actually has to do with small business development. Okay. It's, it's creation of economic opportunity. Okay. So in Arkansas right now, uh, and this has been true with, with many, if not most of our recent governors, when you're talking about economic development and jobs, what that basically means if you're sitting in the governor's mansion of the capital, 
is the recruitment of big business from outside in, either outside the state or outside the country. And don't get me wrong, I'm fine with that. I think that should be part of our strategy. And I will be happy as an Arkansan to stand up and clap every time we can cut a new ribbon uh, in some town. But we need to realize that that strategy is woefully inadequate to actually create prosperity and good, well-paying, good and good-paying jobs across the state. You know, even when that strategy is going gangbusters, it's going to benefit maybe 10% of Arkansas's communities. The big opportunity that we're missing is failing to realize that in virtually every town in Arkansas, we have smart, talented people that have the vision, the courage, the tenacity, the bravery to start a scrappy new enterprise. And I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, the next big app for your phone or some sort of San Francisco style tech startup. I'm talking about modest but real respectable enterprises, lawn care business, barbershops, yeah. restaurants, stuff that small town America needs yeah. more of right now. Yeah. There are people in all these towns that can and would do that, but they don't have easy access to capital. They don't have access to health care, usually when they take the risk, unless mm -hmm. they've got a spouse that's got a job mm -hmm. that has it, right? And they usually would benefit from just 15 or 20 hours of basic training yeah. that give you the ins and outs of business, they take your odds of success from 15 or 20 percent to yep. maybe around 50 percent, yep. right? We could do all that. We could provide all that. We could do it for a fraction of the money we put up to try to lure a handful of jobs in from overseas or out of state. Jobs that, yeah, they're fine, but they'll probably be up for grabs in another decade or decade and a half, Absolutely. right? If we empowered and made part of being an Arkansan access mm -hmm. to the resources and tools it takes to build small businesses, you give every community, not just a few, right. some sense of control back over their economic destiny, mm -hmm. and that would actually be an economic strategy that would still be relevant in 10 or 15 years. And here's what I mean by that, that last statement. You know, we're living in one of the most dynamic and rapid and expansive periods of economic change in human history. You know, we don't know what the jobs are going to be in 10 years, much less 20 right. in a lot of places. But I can tell you that 70 or 80% of the, the knowledge and the relationships that you need to have to start a business today will still be relevant mm -hmm. in 10 or 15 years. The business itself might change, but the basics of what it takes to start one will still be the same. So let's equip people with that okay. and trust them to innovate and build from the bottom up community by community. You know, I think that would also be a way that you would see more jobs and better paying jobs. And you know, my rationale for that is simple. I think that the person, if, if, if the boss, if your boss and your CEO is a member of your neighborhood or a member of your community, they're more likely to pay you fairly than if your boss is in a boardroom a thousand miles away. Okay. That's a good point. Right. Uh, once again, Philip Fletcher, I'm here with Jared Henderson, the Arkansas uh, Democratic candidate for governor. All right. It's a long mouthful of some days. And we're here at <laughs> Round Mountain Coffee. Say governor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always good. That's good optimism. You got to do that. Though. You got to be optimistic. You got to be optimistic. You do. Um, does anybody in the room have a question uh, for Mr. Henderson? I have some questions. Yeah. Um, so, when, back to education, uh -huh. um, he's been going into the fourth grade. All right. And I have spoken with several people. I, I work at Hendrix, and I have uh -huh. a friend of mine whose daughter was just in fourth grade at one of the public schools locally. And then I have spoken to two other people. And they don't teach science in the fourth grade here. They mm. teach a science component. And as long as that could be like a chapter in a book, yep. they're not teaching science. And that's a big problem for me, I think, mm -hmm. because um, 
that also eliminates some opportunity if we're not focusing on science. And I spoke yesterday to a high school, Conway High School teacher, and he said that they are focused primarily on English and math. And those are great subjects, but science, like you need to have a science. Yeah. So what, what kind of, I think that puts Arkansas children at a disadvantage for other states who are focusing on this technology and this science. Yeah. And, you know, we had that program where um, teaching kids to code, which is great, mm -hmm. but if they're not doing basic science in elementary school, yeah. how is that going to benefit? Yeah. Uh, like, like, is there a way to make a uniform standard across the state? Yes. Well, I mean, that's what um, would. That's what Common Core, for all of its advocates and opponents, was trying to set the standards for. I think one of the things that's gotten in the way of progress, whether it's through Common Core or not, is well-intended but ultimately flawed policy. And in this case, it's testing, right? right. One of the reasons that you see this all-consuming focus on English and math is because that's what the tests measure. And that's what people are held accountable for. And so it is drowning out everything else around it. And it actually comes back to something I said earlier, which is from Washington to Little Rock on down, in Republican and Democratic administrations, we have implicitly and sometimes explicitly said, we don't trust teachers and school leaders to educate their kids. So we're deciding from afar what they have to learn, how it's gonna be measured. We make everything about these tests and the metrics that are on them. And don't get me wrong, I think those can be a useful part. It allows us to not sweep under performance or lack of equity under the rug for kids but it also you know like policy can tend to do it's had unintended consequences and we haven't seen any correction before right. you know all we've done is switch out the tests mm -hmm. which has just driven people even more mad so yeah. is there a way that you can get away from teaching to the test well uh as long as you, you have tests, you're going to have some of that. I think, I think the two keys are one, and you need to have good tests. You need to have tests that don't require regurgitation, but actually measure fundamental skills, your ability to communicate, writing, and orally, and your ability to think critically. Like if a test actually measures those things, yeah, yeah build up some, some ability to do those things, and it'll be good in life. But we do need to, <clears throat> to decrease... The, just the overwhelming importance of these things and give educators some freedom, freedom back to innovate. Because you know, while I don't want kids in any school to not have some high floor of opportunities, I think, I think no matter where you live and where you grow up, if you have the ability and the dream, you should have a fighting shot of going to college, right? However, I also think that we need to give free, the communities the freedom to say, you know what, in our town, A, half our kids legitimately they want good, well-paying technical vocational jobs. Like, they need to have the freedom to dedicate resources to that and actually prepare and equip their students with the training and the connections to the jobs, too. And as it stands, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, you mentioned Arkansas's high graduation rates yeah. from high school, and we should be proud of that. I think that's a good thing. But what's also true is that Arkansas, we, have a, we also have a very high rate of college attendance, mm -hmm. which sounds good but we have the second lowest rate of college completion. Which means we're sending a lot of kids there right. that, sh that don't want to go and right. are not prepared. Right. Right. You know, um, and so we need, to, we need to empower our school districts 
to think more holistically about how to meet their kids' needs and how to how to put the option for a good future in front of them, whether it's college or something else. May I ask a question here? Yes, sir. When you talk about not teaching science, you're talking about creative uh, creative science? Is that what? Like life science. What? Life so science. Like, mm -hmm. So like they don't teach life science. There's Earth. not a environmental science, science class, right? Yeah. Like you have your subjects of English, math, social studies, science, civics, whatever. They don't have science as a subject. It's a science component that could fit in any of the other classes and that fulfills the science. It's, it's, my dad was a professor at UALR and he taught yeah. biology. So I'm a science person and it freaks me out that we don't have science in yeah. our fourth grade classrooms. Is that your, your clarifying questions? You have a separate question. Oh, I had another question. Okay, just for, just for the upcoming mm -hmm. governor. Um, <laughs> when I look at the politics today and realize how people vote, mm -hmm. a lot of these people are in the poor economic condition. Vote Republican, mm -hmm. and they vote against themselves uh, because of the programs that they're maintaining with Republicans governor are hurting them more than anybody. Mm -hmm. How are you going to convince as you go around campaigning to uh, reach the mindsets of these people to realize yep. they need to uh, yep. want to know what their own politics are doing to themselves? Well, I'll tell you two, two, two things. There's uh, at least two prongs to this strategy. So the first is we have to have a simple but real concrete platform that speaks to their highest needs, the things they're really thinking and talking about at the dinner table. The teachers, their jobs, their wages, and their, their health care, and, and in some communities, their infrastructure, their roads, their access to internet, like things that absolutely, no matter who you are or what your background, you want these things to be good, right? We have to have that, and we have to stay as relentlessly focused on those things as we can. And that's easier said than done because there are broader debates and broader issues, especially as Democrats, we care about. Social issues, other things, right? But if we're going to win and earn votes, we have got to keep it anchored in things that are hitting their most intrinsic, powerful interests. The second thing is, you know, the Democratic Party has got to build some real infrastructure to reach voters in a way that will connect them. And that means person to person, room to room, relationship to relationship, you know. Uh, that means building data systems, it means building, you know, uh, volunteer networks, it means having a strategy town to town to think, okay, how many votes do we need? Where are we going to target them? And boy, who on the ground here, from whether it's a candidate, a campaign, or local folks are going to go get them. Uh, it's going to have to be that granular and that specific. Because, you know, the forces that are at work here um, the only way, you know, whether it's the media echo chamber, the media environment we're in, the only way to crack through that is thousands and thousands and thousands <coughs> of conversations between people who have trust and can sit down and, and, and hammer this out. Does that make sense to follow what I'm saying? Yeah, I just know it's a tremendous task. It is a tremendous task. And it, um, you know, we, we are running in this campaign, I, I do believe we can win, we are running to win. Uh, I also know that there is years, and frankly years, of work to do to build what I'm talking about. 
Um, you know, if the Democratic Party in Arkansas had this at one point, it's eroded away in recent years, so it's having to be built back up. Uh, but it, it can be done. It's but it's gonna it's gonna take some some real investment and and some perseverance, uh, not just by me and a handful of candidates, but by a lot of people. Yes, ma'am. Your question. Um, can you speak to the multiple issues around school safety and guns? Yeah. Well, so I'll, I'll start just by going to the most immediate debate that's on the table right now. I I absolutely do not support arming teachers or asking them to work next door to another teacher that is armed. And there are a variety of reasons that I think that's a bad idea, but the first one I'll say is we already asked teachers to do four or five different jobs. We're going to layer on law enforcement or, or you know, uh, uh, securing the physical safety of their kids too, or, or just the extra responsibility of keeping a gun secure while they, they're managing everything else on their minds. It just doesn't make any sense. You know, I, I think that uh, I think that the you know the governor's task force just released I want to say 13 different recommendations. There was some good stuff in there. I don't mind saying it, particularly around mental health uh, and stuff like that. I'm not opposed to the idea of school resource officers that are well trained. I had one in the high school that I, I went to, uh, and he was great. He was a good constructive member of the community. Uh, it was actually good for us to have closer proximity to a member of law enforcement. It was a good it was a good thing for us. Um, uh, but I, I think that army teachers is is, is crazy uh, for a variety of reasons. And I honestly just think it's an offensive thing to ask educators to do. Again, not just carry the gun themselves, but to be next door to... I mean, ever, think about any workplace you've ever worked, whether it's a school or anything else. There are people that I don't care what training they had, you'd have felt uncomfortable with them having a gun on their hip every day. It's the same as true in schools. And I suspect in some cases those are going to be the exact people that volunteer. Not always. Sometimes it'll be good people with the best of intentions. But we shouldn't ask educators to do that. And if we do, I think we're going to see even uh, more severe drops in the number of people that enter and stay in the profession. What's that? Are broadcast all this since you said? Yes, it'll be. I think uh, we're doing that now. <laughs> being broadcast live and then people will be able to hear it on the podcast. Oh, it's on Facebook right now. It's going live. Yeah, and he'll oh. be able to share it. Oh, and... no, no, I'm so glad I don't know. Oh, that's right. I'm glad that someone will hear it. Yes, ma'am. I'd hate for you to have to say it again. Well, I will. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of campaigning is just repeating. <laughs> Same <laughs> repeating thing over and over again. <laughs> yeah. I have to remind myself every time I... Uh, I give my stump speech that I'm the, I'm usually the you know, well Nathan here's with me uh, other than me and Nathan uh, this is the first or second time people have heard it not the hundred eightieth <laughs> uh, it's it's a funny so experience. Would you be doing any debates? Yes, ma'am. Um, so I think that is to your advantage <laughs> to do that because you speak very well, thank you, clearly, and uh, um, I yes, just think I just think you would. Uh, with anybody <laughs> I appreciate your confidence. So we're going to uh, transition to healthcare. Great. All right. And um, healthcare is uh, in the communities I work with, with the poor, healthcare is very important mm -hmm. uh, to, to the men, women, and children. Uh, you know, recently, uh, there's some changes that's coming out with uh, work requirements uh, yeah. for healthcare. Can you speak to that? Um, uh, your, what you like, what you don't like. Yeah, uh, you know, moving forward, what would you propose in regards to healthcare and helping yep. out our, our Kansans? Well, let's speak to uh, first the the 
work requirements. Okay. Uh, I think it's it's important. So work requirements, that phrase mm -hmm. is popular in Arkansas. Okay. You know, and I know that. It's part of why the governor's running on it. But this, uh, you know, the governor's policy, which has now just gone into effect this last mm -hmm. month, mm -hmm. people in Arkansas need to be clear. It's not a work requirement so much as it is an internet requirement. Okay. Here's what I mean by that. Okay. Like, Arkansas is 49th in internet connectivity. Mm -hmm. The people that are precisely the ones least likely to have access to internet mm -hmm. are the people who are probably most likely, due mm -hmm. to poverty, to, to need Medicaid. Okay. The only way you can prove your eligibility is via the internet. Okay. How does that make any sense? And if you don't, if you're not able to do that three months in a row, you lose your insurance for a year. It's mm -hmm. wrong. You know, and it's not just a bad thing for the people and the families that could lose this insurance. Medicaid is also one of our biggest ways to prevent hospitals and doctors from having to provide uncompensated care. You know, a few other states uh, around the country went a different direction than Arkansas right. with Medicaid expansion. They did not expand it. And you know what happened in most of those states? They lost dozens of rural hospitals. Gone. And that not only means that, you know, people didn't have uh, good access or proximity to health care, but in many counties, in Arkansas and in other states, in many counties, your single biggest and best source of middle class and upper middle class jobs is your hospitals. And so when you lose your hospital, it's not just about your health care, it's about your economy. Mm -hmm. And you know when I see what we're doing with Medicaid with these this internet requirement, which is what I call it, okay. um, and you see the governor's proposal to lower uh, uh, the income threshold for people who get Medicaid, I look at that and I say we're putting our hospitals at risk. Okay. To me, that is what we need to be talking about when Arkansans need to keep in mind when they're deciding whether or not they they support these things. Beyond all that, to me, I think we should, uh, clearly I'm in favor of preserving access to Medicaid and, and, and preserving access to um, health insurance. To me, when we get past Medicaid, the single biggest problem in American healthcare right now, I think is the just astounding and seemingly unstoppable rise in the cost of health insurance. You know, my wife uh, is a surgeon. She has a private practice. We have seven employees, and we provide health insurance to those employees. Okay. There's no one in our practice uh, that doesn't make well past the living wage we talked about earlier. Well past it. And even you know, for some of our employees, we subsidize their insurance, but then they buy on the market, mm -hmm. and it is eating a massive share of their paycheck. And, okay. and it's quickly getting to a point where even if you are healthy, insurance is just not. It's not a real. It's not a plausible expense, even for people that are making what should be very livable wages. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't even hear any. I don't hear anyone in Arkansas, or for that matter, even in D.C., talking about that problem. Okay. Uh, and I think that's where we need to move to. Okay. All right. So we're going to move to kind of a rapid fire as we come to the close oh, of this. All <laughs> right. So we throw the topic out there. You give a. Uh, summarize policy solutions. It's like a Rorschach test. So, so, <laughs> then one question. I know in South Carolina they struck that law down. Uh, and the work requirement? The work requirement. I can't remember. Some state just did. Yeah, it might have been Kentucky. 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 Yeah. Kentucky. Yeah. Yeah. Kentucky. Yeah. Yes, Kentucky. Can we get them to come over? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, we, uh, 
You know, honestly, so I, I, I believe healthcare should be a right in the richest country in the world. I'm proud of that. But a, a lot of our Kansans don't. Okay. I would argue even if you don't, you should still support this because I think we all want our local hospitals to stay open. And Medicaid, if, if, we do, if we take that back, one of two things is going to happen. One, hospitals and doctors are not going to have the revenue they need to stay open. Or two, all that cost is going to get redistributed to everyone else in the prices they pay for their own insurance. And so do you want Medicaid to pay for it, which is, you know, the vast majority of which is federal tax dollars, of which Arkansas is a net recipient, or, you know, do you want to strip it away, deny people their health care, lose some hospitals, and have your own insurance rates go up? Go, go up. Mm. I, to me, I think it's an easy decision. Gotcha. All right, so first, homelessness. Yeah. I, I think that we need to... We need to attack this at the source. We not only need to be generous, but we need to understand, you know, I've, I've done some volunteering and work with homeless you know, folks, both in Arkansas and, and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think that homelessness is predominantly either a result of mental illness or it's a result of poor choices that people made. A lot of times, if not most of the time, it's just bad luck. Mm-hmm. It's people that got sick and laid off at the same time. Mm-hmm. We need to be surrounding these people with compassion and help help them, yes, get back on their feet, get back to work, but that's how we need to approach it. Mental health. Mental health. That is one of the single biggest areas in which we're failing this state. If I had to say, outside of education and jobs, the thing that I hear most on the campaign trail is lack of mental health resources, both coming from the state and in local communities. Uh, we talk about gun violence in schools. It's not the whole answer, but it's, it's definitely a part of the, of the puzzle, and it needs to be something that uh, we make a central cause of the next 10 years. Food insecurity. Food insecurity, you know, if I had one message for people out there, I want them to realize that it is far more common than they think. You know, there have been studies shown recently that even on college campuses, huge proportions of the students there are, in, are food insecure. And there's two aspects to that. It's, it's both access to food. It's also access to decent quality food. I was in a food bank uh, in Russellville recently. They were doing heroic work. I mean, hundreds, thousands of meals a month and, yeah. and a week. But, you know, one thing they flagged to me, they said, you know, this is good, we're making a difference, but look at the food that we have. Mm. Very high calorie, very low mm. nutrition mm. food, yeah. you know, and that's part of the reason why one of the things that we haven't talked about is Arkansas, whether it's childhood obesity mm. rates, rates of heart disease, other sorts of disease, Arkansas has some of the worst health outcomes in the country, and I would argue that it starts with food insecurity. Okay, good. So I'm going to give you the floor. Uh, Give us your one, two-minute stump speech when <laughs> yeah. you come to a close. Yeah. Uh, you can broaden it uh, beyond poverty. Uh, yeah. Give the opportunity for people to hear you uh, and while I'll you're vote, running. I'll vote for it. Thank okay. you, man. <laughs> All right. Well, what's yours? Yeah, you know, we, we've I've, I've really enjoyed this discussion today, mm-hmm. and I just I I love politics when it is really having a substantive discussion on the most important issues. And I think, like for me, this last hour has definitely been that. So I appreciate it. You know, and, it, and it's, when we're having a discussion like this, it's easy to, it's natural to focus on our deficits, you know, our, yeah. our high poverty rates, our, our, uh, our, our low health outcomes, our high rate of food insecurity. We do need to face those things squarely. But I also think in this campaign, there is a constructive role for optimism too. And you know, when I talk to people, and I said a little bit of this earlier, but I look at this state, Arkansas is barely 1% of the population of the United States. Mm-hmm. But in the last few generations, we have built some of the, the most sophisticated and important businesses in yeah. the world from the ground up. You know, our agricultural sector is not just important to the country, it is important to the planet. These mm-hmm. are our Kansans yeah. doing this. 
You know, we know we've elected a president, but people forget that we elected the first woman ever to the United States Senate. Mm -hmm. And we're the home of Johnny Cash, we're the home of Maya Angelou. We're the most dominant program, athletic program in any sport ever, I would argue, mm -hmm. is the University of Arkansas track and field program. Yeah. Yeah. Any sport ever. Yeah. Most dominant program. I raise all these things to say that Arkansas, when it has vision, when it has leadership, it can do, it has done incredible things. I look at this and it makes me say, what is the next 20 or 25 years going to be about? Mm -hmm. What is the next chapter? What is the next area, areas that we build and demonstrate excellence? I'd say it's education. It's making this the best place in the country to build a small business in a rural community. Mm -hmm. It is breaking the back of teenage pregnancy and generational poverty. This can be our story in 20 years when my kid and other young people are looking back on it. But it starts with leadership that demands that. You know, uh, you know, there's a very senior figure in Arkansas politics that said in, in January that the state of our state's never been stronger. I'll let you guess who it is. I'm running against him. That's absolute nonsense mm -hmm. out of four or five counties. Mm -hmm. It is. Uh, and I'm glad we're seeing the prosperity where we are. Mm -hmm. Good for the five or six counties that are thriving. But Arkansas has 75 counties. Mm -hmm. And yes, some of these challenges are hard. But they're not unsolvable. They're not. Mm -hmm. But it starts with naming them and having a deep conviction that we're going to do what it takes uh, uh, to move the needle and to change tens of thousands of lives. All right. Good deal. Just come up for air. Yeah. What's your favorite sport. Favorite favorite sport. Ah uh, man, I'm a, I'm a football guy. Football guy. I love football. Okay. Yeah. Uh, love it. Tell the Razorbacks what you're gonna do. A new coach. Listen, I'm a lifelong Razorback fan, which yeah. means I am an eternal optimist. <laughs> like I just, okay. I'll right. I'll show up again every year, but I I've, I've stopped making predictions. At some point in my life, Arkansas football football is going to get back to where we all know it can and should be. Okay. I'm not going to tell you when, but I'm going to show up this fall at probably every game, not just to campaign, but to cheer my Cheers, lungs Jesus. out. So, Good deal. yeah. Good deal. Jared, I appreciate you being hey, here with us. Hey, it's fun. Thank yes. you. Uh, once again, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, we'll be on a two-week break, and our next interview will be Friday, August 3rd, 2018, with Tara Ward. She is running for city council in Conway, and then on Friday, August 10th, we will sit down with Spencer Hawks, who is running for state rep, District 70. Uh, this has been Humanity Matters, a resource of the City of Hope Outreach, discussing and reflecting on theology, philosophy, leadership, and nonprofits. For more information, you can visit our website, coho58.org. Like us on YouTube at Humanity Matters. Uh, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And always remember, if we remember to live in hope, we can do the impossible. You guys take care. God bless. Yeah, that's fun. Of course.